Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are tonight's <laughs> entertainment. Here on the world, reasons are the wrong None of the Robins ever complain. You're going to melt just like a cheap sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves, DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. And with me, as always, is my co-host. Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nico and I cover episodes of The Flash, Arrow, and DC's Legends of Tomorrow, but no Supergirl, which is actually off this week, or Gotham, as it is still on its long winter hiatus until April. But before we kick it off with Flash, we're going to start with this week's News with Nico, DC Headlines. The Batman script is being rewritten from scratch. Ben Affleck and Jeff Johns worked on a script for the Batman that Ben Affleck was never truly happy with. Last we heard, he brought in Batman vs. Superman and Justice League writer Chris Terrio to work on a draft. But now a new rumor says that they're starting over. Sources tell Slash Film that the Batman script is being rewritten from scratch and that it's possible that everything we've heard about the movie so far, like Joe Manganiello as Deathstroke, could no longer be in play, which was confirmed by Joe Manganiello in another snippet from an interview on Entertainment Weekly when Joe said he doesn't even know if he's still playing Deathstroke, but hopes he is. If this is true, it's possible that new director Matt Reeves has a different Batman story he wants to tell, thus the reboot of the script. And speaking of Reeves, his commitments to War of the Planet of the Apes will keep him busy through June, but after the movie opens in July, he will be able to start meeting with actors to cast in the Batman, but the production is not likely to begin until 2018. Legend of Tarzan writer in talks for Suicide Squad 2. Adam Kozad, who wrote last summer's Legends of Tarzan for Warner Brothers, is in talks to write Suicide Squad 2, according to Variety. Variety says that Suicide Squad 2 is a priority for Warner Brothers, and they've reached out to several directors. The most famous is Mel Gibson, who confirmed that talks about the sequel have taken place. David Ayer wrote and directed Suicide Squad, but his next movie will be Gotham City Sirens, which will star Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and her friends Catwoman and Poison Ivy. I hope Adam Kozad can give us the Suicide Squad we wanted last year and David Ayer did not provide or whatever the edit was did not provide because uh, I was really disappointed with that. So I'm hoping this Suicide Squad 2 is better. Warner Brothers wants X-Men and Kingsman director for Man of Steel 2. Since last summer, we heard that a Man of Steel sequel was in an active development, but things seem to have finally begun moving past that stage. According to Collider, Kingsman The Secret Service's Matthew Vaughn is Warner Brothers' top choice to direct Man of Steel 2, and the two parties are currently in early talks. Collider notes that if Vaughn passes on the Superman movie, Warner Brothers would still want to work with him on a different DC film project, and in 2010, Vaughn picked 
pitched a Superman movie to Warner Brothers, but they ended up going with Christopher Nolan and David Goyer's idea instead, which led us to Man of Steel. Vaughn went on to direct Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class, so he's not exactly a stranger to the superhero movie genre. Later that year, Vaughn told MTV what a Superman movie should be like. He said, I think that the one thing not to do with Superman would be trying to do the serious Dark Knight version. Superman is about color and fun, and it should be, at least for me. I wonder if he can still make the Superman film that he wants with the crap they've already done in the DCEU. Supergirl photos Kara meets Monel's parents. After a brief hiatus this week, Supergirl returns with a long-awaited arrival of Terry Hatcher and Kevin Sorbo's top-secret characters, now known to be a pair of royals from Daxum, where Monel was apparently a prince. Given that the incoming duo was previously referred to as Your Highness, I think it's probably safe to theorize that they're also Monel's parents. Viewers were introduced to Hatcher and Sorbo's characters in the final moments of the March 6th episode, but their meeting with Kara is sure to prove far more momentous. The promo for Monday's episode finds the Girl of Steel informing Monel that the revelation of his royal lineage changes everything. But there's more than just Kara's awkward sit-down dinner with the Daxamites to look forward to. New photos released by the CW on Wednesday also feature the arrival of Darren Chris as the villainous music meister, the catalyst of Tuesday's musical Supergirl Flash crossover. That is what I'm really looking forward to next week. Aquaman release date gets pushed back to December 2018. Warner Brothers has moved the release date of Aquaman back a couple months from October 5th to December 21st, 2018. Aquaman will now compete with a animated Spider-Man movie from Sony, which is coming out on the same day in December. No reason for the delay has been given at this time. Warner Brothers wants to shoot Suicide Squad 2 Gotham City Sirens this year. With this week's news of Aquaman's release date being pushed back to December 21st, 2018, there's an opportunity for Warner Brothers to release another DC movie earlier in the year. To do that, they'll have to start shooting this year, and according to Variety reporter Justin Kroll, Warner Brothers is currently weighing their options. With Aquaman beginning production in May, Kroll says that Warner Brothers wants to put another DC comic movie in front of cameras this year, and they have a handful in mind to choose from, including Gotham City Sirens, The Flash, Green Lantern, Suicide Squad 2, and Dark Universe. Those are all being considered to begin production this year. Thankfully, Kroll notes that Warner Brothers is content with just shooting Aquaman if one of the five scripts I've just mentioned aren't ready to go this year. Regardless of which one it ends up being, DC needs to step up its game and make something we actually want to see and not the crap that has been the DCEU so far. Steve Trevor is getting his own comic in June. This June, fans can experience the world of Wonder Woman on more than just the Hollywood silver screen, as DC announces a special one-shot story, Wonder Woman Steve Trevor number 1. This tale from writers Tim Steely, who wrote Nightwing and Grayson, and artist Christian Deuce from Detective Comics, Batman and Robin Eternal, introduces a new adventure for the first man who stepped into Wonder Woman's world in Themyscira. Steve and Diana's longtime friendship, despite their coming from separate worlds, is inspiring, but in this story will get a chance to see Steve come face to face with a villain from Wonder Woman's past who he'll have to overcome without her help. Says Seely, I'm excited to dive back into the life of Steve Trevor and give him a new crazy adventure of his own. They have been friends and lovers, but more importantly, they have been there for each other over the decades. From Steve's first moments on Paradise Island to the day that Diana left her home to join Man's World, they have worked together and fought to protect humanity. But now, Steve Trevor will be forced to face an ancient foe, and he'll have to do it all alone. Where is Wonder Woman? And what will become of Steve Trevor? Find out in this thrilling action-packed story on sale June 7th. And that's the news with Nico, DC Headlines, for this week.
All right, as Michael said, we're going to kick things off with Flash this week as Supergirl took this week off as it seems that each of the CW shows has taken a one-week hiatus to get things all up and ready for <laughs> as we start moving towards that finale push. But uh, this week it was Supergirl, so we're going to jump in with The Flash and we're going to talk about an episode that Michael and I had a little bit different opinion on. I was not a huge fan of it, but Michael makes some good points, so we're going to talk about that and I think we'll have a good discussion about this week's episode into the speed force my name is barry allen i am the fastest man alive barry enters the speed force to find wally and bring him out meanwhile jesse vows to take on savitar and hr tries to talk her out of it michael i i really had trouble with this episode because well quite frankly i didn't like it and that was only partially due to the smallville like relationship reset for both barry and iris and wally and jesse at the end of the episode sure there were more aspects of the episodes that i liked, but the dissatisfaction more than outweighed the good i understand that barry had to return to the speed force to save wally and release him from the prison that future Barry created there because Savitar freed himself from it last week by tricking Wally into changing places with him, but I'm not exactly sure why Savitar needed the Philosopher's Stone when he just needed some speedster to take his place, but I've likely forgotten something there and it, it or it is needed to break free of the prison and force the swap. Either way, it was poorly explained in this episode. Anyway, the Speed Force once again decided to put Barry through an emotional ringer, this time in the form of Eddie, Ronnie, and Leonard Snart. Don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed seeing each of these characters return to the series, even without really returning to the series. My issue was more with the Speed Force in general. Each of these returning characters was used by the Speed Force to interrogate Barry about his reasons for wanting to free Wally, and the Eddie incarnation in particular rightly pointed out that the Speed Force only granted Barry back his speed when he promised he was over his mom's death last season. And then, seriously, two episodes later, he causes Flashpoint. Basically, the Speed Force, while totally understanding that Barry is a complex human being who is driven in no small part by his emotions, would really like it if Barry could learn a damn lesson from these ghosts of his past tragedies. Also, the primary lesson the Speed Force wanted Barry to take away from all of this was that he, and he alone, was the one who needed to stop Savitar. He's the Flash, after all, and he needs to trust and believe in himself and his ability. He needs to keep fighting, hence the reason the Speed Force manifested as Snart right outside the Speedster prison in an attempt to stop him from switching places with Wally or sacrificing himself to save Wally. The trouble with all of this is that we've been here before and seen all of this in previous seasons. Literally every season has Barry learning to believe in himself after something goes very wrong. People sacrificing themselves, people getting murdered, people getting unwanted metahuman abilities because of alternate timelines, and people getting stuck in the Speed Force prisons. And that mistake or consequences begins to weigh on Barry until he has his run Barry run moment and beats the evil speedster of the season in the finale. And then he'll do something kind of dumb right after that. Michael, does all of this feel like it is supposed to be showing Barry's development as a hero, but in fact rather felt more like the show keeps resetting Barry to a guy who needs to revisit the Speed Force to be reminded of that or reminded that, hey, 
hey, you're a hero. It's just like The Flash as a series can't really let Barry grow and become comfortable with himself as a hero. Is that a fair assessment? Do you feel like this episode in particular really focused or put the focus on how much of this season has been a retread of the previous two? And did that affect your enjoyment of the episode? You know, Nico, I really did like this episode. I always enjoy episodes of shows when they go back to characters' pasts and bring up their failures and their faults and even their achievements so that they can overcome them or move on to the next thing. Buffy did one, Smallville did a few, and so has Supernatural and even Arrow. And so from that standpoint, I really like this episode a lot. In fact, one of my favorite episodes last season was actually the episode you mentioned, where Barry was first trapped in the Speed Force before it let him go to phase Zoom. As for your idea that Barry can never really be comfortable with himself as a hero, I actually agree, but only to a point. You know, one of the things Arrow has done consistently over the past few years is make Oliver doubt himself and constantly question if he's any good for Star City. This is a recurring theme in just about every superhero show out there, really. And I think the issue we both have with The Flash doing this is that Barry Allen is supposed to be the more optimistic hero. In fact, the most optimistic DC hero next to Superman himself in the self-doubting version of the character that we've seen, especially in these past two seasons, as in seasons three and two. I didn't feel we got it as much in one, but this version is not that hero, not at least entirely. So I can understand your frustration completely, and I agree with that. But clearly, this is a lesson that our version of Barry still needs to learn. Yeah, Michael. You know, I I really love the first trip to the Speed Force that you mentioned as well. And I was actually really excited to see him return to the Speed Force this week. But what we got this week, for me at least, was too much of a retread of the last time he was there. Sure, the story elements were different, but my point was that this week just felt too much like a rehash of what Barry was supposed to have learned the last time he was in the Speed Force. And I agree that on Arrow, they have established that the self-doubt and questioning of whether or not Oliver is making a difference in the city has been an effective storytelling and plot-driving force. But as you mentioned, that does not really work for me on Flash because Barry is supposed to be so much more hopeful and even at a a time so much more self-assured. Some animated versions are even borderline cocky when they draw and do the, the Barry Allen character. And it just doesn't feel like the Flash to me when they're doing this. And I I think that's the driving force behind my dissatisfaction lately is that it doesn't really feel like a Flash show right now. And I'm hoping that that's just temporary. And that means that they're building towards something and are going to fix fix it in the finale or fix it. Or, you know, it's not even that they have to fix it. It's that they're intentionally doing something to get us to a certain point. And if that's the case, then, okay, at the end, I'm going to be like, all right, that made sense now. Right. Now, Michael, I mentioned that I did really enjoy the return of Eddie, Ronnie Raymond, and Leonard Snart in this week's episode. I personally preferred the return of Snart because, like the others, he was just a vessel for the Speed Force, but Miller's so damn good, he can't help but remind us what this show has been missing since he left it for Legends of Tomorrow, and even more, what that show has been missing this season without him. But I gotta ask, did you have a favorite of the three returning, and did you feel that each of them were trying to teach Barry a different lesson, or were all three variations sort of teaching the same lesson the Speed Force wanted Barry to learn? Yeah, I I feel like on some level they were all trying to teach him the same lesson because I don't feel like it would be productive for the Speed Force to try and teach him three at the same time if he they don't even think that he can learn one. Right. But um, So from that standpoint, I think ultimately it was the same goal. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you on Snart because he was definitely my favorite return as well. He not only got to battle the Flash again, which was great, but it also explained to Barry that even one of his greatest adversaries could be inspired by the Flash's heroics and even make the ultimate sacrifice to save others. See, 
being Eddie and Ronnie was definitely great as well, but I think most people can agree that Captain Cold is by far our fan favorite. Although, if we're going to be talking about returns from the past, I think it would be wrong not to mention that Zoom, a.k.a. Hunter Solomon, a.k.a. the new Black Flash, also appeared this week. And, you know, it's somewhat ironic that Zoom was why the Flash was in the Speed Force last season, and now Barry has to face Solomon again in the Speed Force. So that's kind of cool. And it was really cool to see Barry battle the Black Flash this week. We've seen the Black Flash show up on Legends of Tomorrow and kind of face, you know, the Legion of Doom. But seeing him face the Flash was even better, I thought. And I'm just glad it didn't take a majority of the episode and take away from the story. But I was also really glad that we saw it. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael. I completely spaced on that entire aspect of the episode. And it was it was pretty great to see Barry battle the Black Flash, like you said. But I agree, it would have been too much if it had eaten up the entirety or too much of the time while Barry was in the Speed Force. So I was glad that the Speed Force changed tactics once Barry almost escaped level one with Eddie and the Black Flash and moved on to the next scene with Ronnie and then moved on to the Snart scene. So yeah, I, I like the way that they structured that. Another thing that I felt worked this week was the emotional moment when Jay volunteered to take Wally's place in the Speed Force prison. It was by no means a surprise, and the moment that Jay showed up in the Speed Force, my heart sank because I knew that one of them was not making it back, and the veteran Flash chose to sacrifice himself to save Barry and Wally. Michael, quite a few people on Twitter and in the comments from the episode on Nerdist.com and TV.com remarked that they didn't feel like the Jay Garrick sacrifice pulled at their heartstrings like it was meant to because they felt that we haven't really spent all that much time with Jay, at least this version of Jay, that is. And Barry's been so unlikable that instead of appearing noble, it felt for them rather that Jay comes off as a bit of a chump for investing so much in Barry. One went even so far as to say that the only reason it works at all emotionally is because Jay looks like Henry and they're playing off the father-son dynamic, otherwise it doesn't work. So Michael, I'm asking, did this work for you? Was it a surprise at all, or could you see the writing on the wall when Jay showed up in the Speed Force? You know, I knew Jay was going to take Wally's place the moment he got on screen, which was rough for me because I was really hoping for a Flash family battle against Avatar later this season, which I suppose we could still get, but it'll make it a little harder. And you're definitely right, um, or that comment on Twitter is definitely right in some respects, that the primary reason it worked was because Jay is essentially Barry's father, or at least an alternate version of it. But, you know, I had no actual issues with that or with Jay taking Wally's place in and of itself because I felt like it worked. I felt like you needed someone who looked like Barry's father, someone who could actually reach Barry in a way that probably Joe or Cisco or even Iris in some respects couldn't and say, no, it's my time to take the sacrifice. You need to keep fighting. And I, I felt that worked very well. You know, yeah. My hope is that Jay will be able to at least help the other Flashes eventually, but I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I hope so too. It would be a waste to have him stuck in the Speed Force and unable to help in the final boss battle in the finale, but I can see it going either way, really. I actually really enjoyed the scenes with Jay and Barry this year, and I, I don't really necessarily agree that they haven't done the work to set that up. I know it's a little bit of a cheat that he looks so much like Henry, and they're building off of the work that they did with Barry and Henry in the first two seasons, but I, I think there's that natural, that that just jump-started the Jay and Barry relationship, and so for that 
that I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay that they kind of jumped ahead of where they would have been with their friendship because of that. And yeah, maybe it's a little bit of a cheat, but I think they've still done some good work, especially with Jay showing up in the first half and taking him out of time or taking him to another time back to the 90s and having that little talk about, no, you can't continue to screw up time. You can't do that. You're a hero. You can't just whimsically change things and change everybody's reality. That's not what a hero does. I think they've had some of those moments. So I was a little taken aback by that and I wanted to get your your feel on it. And I'm glad that we're kind of on the same page on this one. Well, I think it even goes back in some level to how Barry Allen and the comics related to Jay Garrick. In the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, young Barry, when he was a kid before he got his powers, read the Flash comics right. with Jay in them. And he was his hero. He was his idol. He was the father figure that, you know, he had in his own father, but it, it was different. And I think that this show builds off of that just as much as it builds off of the fact that he looks like Henry, because it, in a lot of respects, Jay is what Barry could become one day and do for somebody else like Wally or Jesse or even somebody we haven't even met like yet, maybe like Bart Allen. I don't know. But in a lot of respects, I think it works just from that standpoint alone. Yeah, I agree. Now, for those who have had issues with Barry this season, what he did next probably didn't help things, I'm sure. Barry's first decision he makes upon returning home is to tell Iris he thinks they need to spend some time apart. As someone who's been in a number of stable and the occasional unstable relationship over the last 20 years, I can verify that this is pretty much the exact opposite of the way intelligent couples behave. This is how CW couples behave, sure. And really, this is a symptom of serialized television and the need to slow down the progression of a relationship and stretch it out over multiple seasons. But this is not realistic. And in reality, if and when a relationship goes the need space route, it is time to start looking for a new place to live because that relationship is over. Michael, they pulled the old CW move on us this week. Something Clark and Lana went through, and I even mentioned last week about that, every time they got almost together, they'd have Clark go on one of his colored kryptonite binges and destroy the budding relationship, and they'd have to start all over. Can you believe they pulled this BS? Are you frustrated by it, or was it a necessary evil to forestall the relationship? Can we honestly be expected to believe their story can survive this? Oh, I mean, I am definitely frustrated. (laughs) I mean, it was was definitely that CW BS that we so often get, and just about every show now that the network has ever aired, and I think we're both really sick of it, and I think a lot of other people are really sick of it. And you're right, Nico, it's not at all how real couples behave. In fact, I don't even think I've ever heard of something like this happening at all in real life. I think we can still expect Barry and Iris to survive this, just based on the fact that I don't think the writers of the show are going to pull uh, Oliver Laurel on us and wreck that, because I think they knew that was a mistake on Arrow, and thus I don't think they would attempt to do that here on The Flash as well. Plus, they've set up Iris as this lightning rod for so long that she can't not be. But that being said, I think Barry and Iris, once Savitar is defeated, you know, hopefully will be able to pick up exactly where they left off, if not even before Savitar is defeated. That's my hope. I, I don't know. You're starting to get me a little nervous, though. Yeah, you know, I'm sure the intention of the Flash's producers has been to use this season as kind of a crucible in which Barry's faith in himself and his ability to be a partner to his wife is tested, unless they actually really are going or planning to kill off Iris. But he's been through so many similar tests in the past two years, and as we've seen these last few weeks, found to be not up to scratch yet. That It's getting harder and harder for me to believe he'll learn all that much 
much from this season. Luckily, Barry and we the viewers will get a bit of a break from all of this next week with a two-part musical crossover episode with Supergirl. But when the Savitar storyline resumes in the following episode, I'm just praying for the love of all that is holy in the Flash universe that this series can find a way to instill the hope that permeates the Flash comic books and classic Flash stories and to which this show so often just merely pays lip service. That is a huge part of the Flash universe, the Flash comics, everything is the hopeful nature of the Flash. And that's something that Dan and I talked about in season one and two every week was how much hopeful, how much more hopeful this series was supposed to be than Arrow and how much it was supposed to be light and breezy and and really just a lot of fun and not so serious. And I think they've gone away from that this season. Now, this is the dark third season, so some of that is to be expected, but it's still a little bit frustrating. And I still didn't even feel like season one was all that dark. You know, I I felt like compared to this season and especially last season, that season one was actually pretty light. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. And it was it was really good for the first season to set that tone. Now, I just hope they can get back to it. And maybe that'll be a season four thing coming out of the darkness. Kind of like Arrow. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, before we go, Michael, I mentioned that not only did the series pump the brakes on Barry and Iris, but they did the same thing to Jesse and Wally. Now, personally, I actually felt like the reason for Jesse to take over as the Flash on Earth 3 and separate from Wally made sense and entirely felt less contrived than those for Barry and Iris, especially with Wally being so emotionally destroyed by reliving his mother's death over and over and over again in the Speed Force. Some time apart might actually be the right move here for both of these heroes. So did this version work for you or was it still more of the same? See, I, you know, I felt the opposite. I think Jesse leaving now and Wally really needs her most is very classic CW and trying to keep the two characters apart for seemingly no reason at all. It just, it, do, it didn't work for me. And just as much as I hated how Barry and Iris ended off at the end of this week's episode, I also hated the way Wally and Jesse ended. You know, it's like they don't want anybody to be happy ever. I don't want this show to go down the same road that Supergirl has this season, Nico. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, that in a lot of respects, that may be a possibility. Yeah, you know, I was probably just trying to rationalize the writer's decision and come up with the reason it was the right move. But your reaction was my initial reaction in the moment as well. And I should have stuck with it because after hearing you say it as well, I agree. It does seem like CWBS, but I did think Jesse stepping up and filling the now vacant role that Jay left on Earth 3 was heroic. And that was what I was thinking was good about having her step up and sacrifice her happiness to pay the debt of Jay's sacrifice. But it does feel like merely a way to slow the relationship as well. So I'm a little torn with liking Jesse taking over for Jay and the whole splitting them up stuff, not liking that. So I think that might have been where I was trying to make something good out of it. Anyway, how great was HR this week? It's not the peanuts. It's just peanuts. This week's episode was far and away also the best Jesse Quick episode the show's given us this season, even if that's not saying much. Overcoming her frustrations to work with HR and successfully take on Savitar all by herself, she sort of made both Barry and Wally look like amateurs. I sort of wish we could have a portion of one of the upcoming episodes over on Earth 3 and focus on her. How cool would that be? Anyway, Michael, anything else you want to discuss? Did you enjoy the Jesse Quick stuff this week or did you find her annoying? Because up until she took on Saboteur by herself, I was borderline annoyed with her. But then I felt like it elevated to pretty great stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see a Jesse Quick themed episode as well. Earth 3 would be a great new Earth to explore. 
forward. It could serve as a way for Wally and her to be reunited, maybe even spend an episode that was mostly about them. You know, as for how Jesse was used this week, I was definitely irritated with her based on the fact that she acted almost identical to how Wally did last week. So I get that. But at the same time, she did give some vital information to the team about Savitar having a weak point. So there were definitely some redeeming factors. Oh yeah, for sure, Michael. I didn't want to imply that I love this aspect of this episode either, but the stuff we got from Jesse this week was better than what we've gotten in the past and more of it as she was a solid B plot this week as opposed to always being relegated to the C plot stories and being there as merely window dressing a MacGuffin to save or the one that comes to Earth 1 to launch Barry and Team Flash's excursion to Earth 2. She actually had plot points and progression this week and for that I meant this was the best Jesse Quick story we've had this season but I wholeheartedly agree that it was <laughs> how annoying she was at times and as I said until she took on Savitar and actually gave the team that important information about his weakness she was annoying as hell so I can definitely see it not being you know if they, if they don't go that route if she doesn't somehow find that Savitar is vulnerable under his armor it, this is not a good episode this is not a good Jesse Quick story so that one factor kind of redeemed everything else for me but I think with that it's about time that we move on from Flash and talk about this week's Arrow episode that really sort of changed things up in a good way in the sense that now everybody knows who the players on the board are and we get to see really what that means and that was fun and so now we're going to talk about the episode Checkmate. While Oliver discovers Prometheus' true identity and who has been helping him, Felicity calls upon Helix's resources to help her find Susan. Last week's big reveal was that Adrian Chase is actually Prometheus, the throwing star killer. This week starts off with Oliver confronting Talia about training Prometheus, and I really like the way this episode opened up with Oliver having to fight his way to his former mentor, only to realize that she is the one who betrayed him willingly. Nico, as you and I and Batman fans already know, Talia is the daughter of Rachel Ghoul, but to Oliver, this was seemingly a new revelation. It's because of Raisha's death that Talia had decided to help Chase destroy, not kill, but destroy Oliver. Nico, what did you think about this revelation? Do you think Oliver will be able to reach Talia and change her mind about working with Prometheus? Or do you think she's completely set on vengeance for her father's death? I, it's very interesting, her reaction to it compared to now. Yeah, I really liked it this week, Michael. And I think that Oliver will not be able to reach Talia and convince her that, that he was either not wrong in killing her father or that she is wrong for working with Prometheus. To an extent, Oliver and the Green Arrow are too friendly with many of the big bads from the comics, and it would be fun to see one that goes full enemy nemesis to the Green Arrow. We've been discussing all season, off and on, what we thought next season might look like. Seeing Talia as a nemesis to Oliver could be really fun, especially if we also get the occasional flashback to them as allies in Russia and Talia training Oliver. And also, since in this world, Oliver has become Bruce Wayne for many of the stories, and we could see the love-hate relationship that exists in the comics between Talia and Bruce Batman here on Arrow with Oliver Green Arrow. I'm not really sure whether or not Lexa Doeg is planned in the future of this series or that Talia will even survive beyond this season, but I really hope she does. I would also love the idea of seeing Talia and Nyssa go head-to-head. If there is a way to bring that to the series either this season or next, I would be all for that. We last saw Nyssa at Laurel's funeral and she dissolved the League of Assassins, so it would be fun to see her have to go head-to-head with Talia's offshoot of the 
the League of Assassins, maybe even naming them the League of Shadows to bring that name and continuity to the Arrow series. That would make for an amazing season six. Oh, absolutely. And I, I love that idea of calling them the League of Shadows. That's awesome. Yeah. I also think that you're right. And we could easily see if Team Arrow finds out that Talia is one of Oliver's captors, then bring in Nessa and actually use her to help them get in in the first place. That would be very interesting as well. Yep. Speaking of Prometheus, we also learned that Adrian Chase is not Prometheus' true identity, which leads me to believe that perhaps Simon Morrison, named kind of after Grant Morrison, which is Dan and I's least favorite Batman writer ever, <laughs> Adrian Chase's real identity stole the vigilante's secret identity and is now part of the reason for creating him, just as Oliver is the reason Prometheus himself exists. Nico, is there any possibility that that could be the case, that Prometheus actually stole the vigilante's real name, and now the vigilante is acting in vengeance on Star City? Could Vigilante actually be fighting to reclaim something that he lost long ago? And could this eventually be what bridges the gap between the Green Arrow and the Vigilante, bringing them together to restore Star City side by side? Is that possible at all? Yeah, Michael, I love that idea. If it turns out, and it seems more likely that that will be the case, that our twins theory from last week is not going to pan out, then the idea of Simon Morrison taking over and assuming Adrian Chase's identity could be the cause and creation of the real Adrian Chase to become Vigilante. There are still a lot of things the writers and show need to explain, like how Vigilante disappeared when he was fighting Prometheus on the roof a few weeks back when Prometheus threw him off the roof. But if this is the way the show goes, I still think it could be a really great story, especially if Vigilante and the real Adrian Chase become allies with Oliver and the Green Arrow going forward. But again, the show and the writers would have quite a bit of work to do to make this story work. I like that idea, Michael, and now that Vigilante knows, or rather we know and Oliver knows, and we can assume Vigilante knows that Adrian Chase is Prometheus, maybe Vigilante will not be after Oliver anymore. And the reason I say that is my guess now is that Vigilante was after the Green Arrow, assuming that the person who stole his identity and ruined his life was the same one now under the hood as the Arrow, and thus was why Vigilante was going after the Green Arrow, but was also going after Prometheus because he was a bad guy, and Vigilante and the real Adrian Chase are good, or at least anti-heroes, and usually try to do the right thing. That is just a thought I had, that now that Vigilante knows that the Green Arrow is not the one who stole his identity, we could see them join forces with with him. At least maybe. That was my thought. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that would be a great way to reintroduce Adrian Chase and maybe even bring him back into Oliver's mayoral cabinet in, in some respects, depending on what the real Adrian Chase does for a living. That could be a very cool way to bring somebody back into that DA role and kind of redeem what Prometheus has stolen. In a lot of respects, it reminds me a lot of what Zoom did with the Jay Garrick identity last season on The Flash. Now, do you think the real Adrian Chase looks like the one that stole his identity? any the Simon Morrison I want to say no, but I could easily see that being the case just like based on the fact that if Prometheus were to really immerse himself in this identity, changing his face wouldn't be a bad idea. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think in a lot of respects that could be best, the best option. And that might explain our next point we're going to talk about, and I'll, I'll bring that back up. Yes. Now, continue on this Prometheus train. One of the worst parts of the episode for me was watching Chase kill his wife. I don't know about you, Nico, but I have a really hard time watching 
characters in both film and television kill members of their own family. You know, Diggle had to do it last season, and now we see it again this week. And for a moment, I thought Doris was in on the whole thing, like Damien Dark's wife was last season. But when Prometheus stabbed her, I had some bad Sleepy Hollow flashbacks to when Ichabod killed Katrina, and I was not a fan. Yeah. You go, what were your thoughts on Adrian actually killing his own wife this week? It's interesting that the entire reason he hates Oliver is because he killed his father. But now that Prometheus has killed his own wife, is he really any better? Is there any merit to that at all? Right. To be honest, Michael, I was surprised because Adrian Chase seemed to love his wife and seemed devoted to her. But this act and the fact that he did it so easily shows to me that the entire Adrian Chase persona in life was all just a cover for Simon Morrison. And thus he believes he is better than Oliver because he didn't kill his family. He killed his cover wife, someone who only meant that his cover as Adrian Chase was secure and safe, keeping his true identity. Essentially, she was there to keep his true identity safe. Even though Oliver and Team Arrow were actually able to expose that this week as well, that that doesn't matter. I was surprised by Adrian killing his wife, but I thought it fit with what we learned of the Simon character in this episode. So ultimately, I was all right with it story-wise. And now I want to also posit that maybe Adrian Chase took over the life of the real Adrian Chase and replaced him. So this wife was the Adrian Chase's wife, but not his wife. Mm. It was so he changed his face like we we proposed in our last point that that might have been a possibility and then he duped Doris into believing that he was the real Adrian Chase that he was her husband and then he was able to just kill her because obviously he wasn't but there was that cover there was that he he pretended so well that even his wife didn't know that he had been replaced that's a, that's it's a thought anyway that's very interesting I like that a lot in you know in some respects too it looks like Adrian got so immersed in this identity of being Adrian Chase that he actually had a hard time killing. Yeah. Because there was definitely some emotion going on in his eyes right before he does it, where he's trying to figure out if he's actually going to do this or not. And, you know, if he immersed himself so deeply into that role and now broke it, that makes him even more dangerous, really. Yeah. Now, this episode ended similarly to the way the Arrow season one finale sacrifice began with Oliver and Chains in front of the season's big bad, this time Prometheus. It's really not like Oliver to get caught in this way, especially within his Green Arrow attire. And after him questioning whether or not he should be the Green Arrow solo or with his team, it seems as if he really does need his team after all. Nico, the promo for next week's episode shows Chase torturing Oliver again, not trying to actually kill him, but to break him and destroy him, kind of like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Something inside of Prometheus is broken, and because of that, he wants to break Oliver and show him who or what he really is deep down. Nico, what do you think next week's episode is going to be? Where do you think it's going and do you think that Oliver can actually win this on his own or is he going to need all the backup he can get you know I think Oliver will come very close to being broken by Prometheus and will begin to really question himself his mission and his decisions as the Green Arrow theoretically I would like to see Oliver have a flashback episode in his mind showing him all of the people he's hurt by being the Green Arrow and while he's being tortured he has flashes to each of these mistakes each of these things all the friends he's lost family and loved ones that he's had killed or have been killed because of his decisions and we could get a return of any number of characters and actors to this series but unfortunately I'm guessing that is in this day and age I would have heard rumors of this and a bunch of guest stars so I'm not too hopeful that that's gonna happen but you never know they might have been able yeah to... also they kind of did that with the 100th episode anyway right right I think that Oliver will win his internal battle against Prometheus on his own but it will probably be 
his team that actually helps him escape Prometheus's custody and get free. So in a way, Oliver will prove to himself that he is worthy and able to be the Green Arrow and continue the mission of, of the Green Arrow, but also the importance of his team and allies in succeeding in that mission. So I think it's going to be a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. Now, lastly, this week's flashbacks show Oliver, Anatoly, and Victor finally making a play against Gregor to get back at Kovar. One of the, our favorite aspects of the Arrow flashbacks is that often Oliver's struggles in the past somehow relate to or reflect what Oliver is going through or learning in the present. This is clearly seen this week as Oliver sees what Chase has become in the present, while in the past he's learning what he himself is going to become. Not only was it a lot of fun to see Oliver back as the hood in Russia, but seeing him become that killer that we know from season one, that mirror image to what Simon Morrison, aka Prometheus, has become now, was cool because if next week's episode is all about Oliver being broken and being who he's supposed to be, this week's set of flashbacks perfectly sets up that story. Nico, did you have any specific thoughts on the Arrow flashbacks this week, and what are you looking forward to most with this story? You know, I really enjoyed seeing Oliver take out virtually the entirety of Gregor's men as the hood. As Oliver, he probably would never have been able to do that, but put on the hood and grab that bow, and he becomes someone else, something else, to quote the opening line of the series, and that is never more in focus than when Oliver is remembering what he became on Lian Yu and in the flashbacks. So I think since this week's episode's flashbacks were setting up the moment he became something else and showed his someone else to Anatoly, it makes sense that next week's episode will be all about Oliver potentially questioning who he has become and what he has become. So it makes a lot of sense and I look forward to seeing even more next week in the flashbacks. Maybe specifically more of Oliver and Talia in Russia since she is now such an important aspect of the present story. Maybe we'll get some more of that. It'd be great to tie that back to the flashbacks as well. Definitely. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on this week's era? Yeah, I was just wondering how you felt about the Helix story. I'm not a huge fan to say the least. I mean, I like the idea of Helix. I think it's a good concept, but not the Felicity aspect of it. I feel like Curtis voiced exactly what we've been thinking the whole time, that Felicity knows that what she is doing is wrong, but seems to not care or be so obsessed and grief-stricken that she'll do anything, even give this group of supervillains slash terrorists. Granted, I, I know she doesn't know that yet, but she gives them access to a Homeland Security drone. She knows that's wrong. Curtis even points it out as they're doing it, and she just keeps doing it anyway. I doubt this will ever happen, but I sort of hope that in her laissez-faire approach to morals and her work with Helix, Felicity gets herself into trouble she can't get out of and either pays the ultimate price to stop what she's done or she ends up in prison for helping terrorists cause a major terror attack. But again, that will never happen since she is a star or is the star of the show. I know she's not really, but it sure as hell seems like it sometimes. Can you tell I've lost any love for her completely with the Helix story and the past three seasons of terrible story development at her expense? You have any thoughts on the Helix story and where it's going? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When I was coming up with our notes for this week's discussion, I totally forgot that that was even a part of the episode. Okay, just, all right. Just, be, just because clearly I didn't, I didn't care, you yeah. know. It, and that's and that's really my thing with Felicity. I think this season and last, and of course season three to a point, I don't really care, you know, what what she's got, what she's going through, what's going on. I cared about the Billy Malone stuff because I think that had consequences on Oliver as well as the rest of the team. So it wasn't just about her. It was something like this until it really becomes part of the main story until it really digs into Team Arrow as a whole. I think really right now it's it's just about Felicity and it's just about her realizing how far she's willing to go. And I think if she goes down that path, I'm not so sure there will be a place for her on Team Arrow all that much longer. And I could easily 
easily see Curtis taking over if that were the case. Yeah, uh, that was a potential was that she could do something so terrible for Helix that Oliver finally says, you're out, you're out. I cannot trust you. I cannot use you anymore. And you have gone so far off mission that you've opened this entire team to liability. You've, you've, you know, we've even postulated that possibly Helix could find out who the Green Arrow is and who all the members of the team are because of her carelessness and and her trusting them and giving them so much information that they essentially hack in and find out who the rest of them are based on knowing who Felicity is. So that's always a possibility as well, that she could completely compromise the security and safety of the team by giving these supervillains and terrorists their all of their identities. Well, and as they mentioned this week, you know, they gave Felicity that Pandora. Well, Pandora's box gets open, but usually as, as someone has to open it from the outside, but something usually comes out from inside as well. So if that's the case, how much data are they actually getting from the Arrow Cave? How much how much are they receiving as she is receiving? You know? Right. That's the that's the scary part. But that being said, unless you have any other thoughts on this week's arrow, I think we can move on to this week's legends. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. This week's legends of tomorrow we are covering season two, episode fourteen, entitled Moonshot. The Legends track Commander Steel to NASA headquarters in 1970 and learn where Nate's grandfather hid the last fragment of the Spear of Destiny. They also notice a time aberration during the Apollo 13 mission and believe the Legion of Doom might be involved. As the Legends journey into space to intercept Apollo 13, the Wave Rider suffers massive internal damage and Ray's life is left in jeopardy when he is stranded on the moon. Nico, I'm not terribly happy with this leak's Legends. You know, it wasn't because the episode wasn't good or that I didn't have a few good laughs because I definitely did and I thought it was good, but I was extremely extremely disappointed with the way the idea of who is the rightful captain of the Wave Rider and the leader of the Legends was settled. You know, Rip had little to no say about, well, anything, and that that had to do with the Wave Rider, the Legends, or the mission this week. And as glad as I was about seeing Rip back in action last week, I was also disappointed that Sarah held onto her position as leader as if it were her life this week. I loved our idea last week that Rip could be the captain of the Wave Rider while Sarah leads the Legends on their field missions, but it seems as if that idea has been thrown completely out the window. Even if it was Sarah herself who made mention that the Wave Rider is in fact Rip's ship and thus he could technically kick them off if he really desired to do so. But she doesn't really say more than that. Nico, were you as irritated by this as I was? Rip had many good ideas this week. Some better than Sarah's. Most better than Sarah's. But he was completely ignored. It seems as if Rip thinks Sarah is the better leader, but I completely disagree. Just because the Legends respond to Sarah better and like her more doesn't technically make her the better leader or more qualified to make the hard decisions, just the more popular vote. In fact, throughout history, some of the best leaders are not always the most respected or most popular, and you'd think the Legends would know that by now, being Time Masters themselves. Nico, what are your thoughts? Am I being too critical about this? No, I'm right there with you, Michael. This was a big mistake in my mind. I understood to a point that the team would possibly have reservations immediately trusting and following Rip now that he is back, and even Rip would have some issues and thoughts that he did not fit in with the team anymore, but that they'd over come that by being able to work 
act together and be successful this week in retrieving the final piece of the spirit destiny and everything would be back to where it was meant to be by the end of the episode. Neither of us thought that they should make Sarah the full-time captain, and while she was fine while filling in for Rip, she is not best suited for the position, nor is she the best tactician or big-picture leader. I wish they had done what we predicted or thought might work last week with having Rip as the captain and in charge, and Sarah as his second-in-command and in charge of the away missions or ground troops. This would have worked so well. But rather, with what they've done, it seems like there is no need for Rip any longer on this show, and they are slowly writing him out of the series. I really hope that's not case, because Rip and Martin are my two favorite characters on this series now, and they've all but written off the Firestorm character this season. So we lost Captain Cold last season, who was one of my favorites. Are we going to lose Rip this season? That would probably make me lose all interest in the series. Not stop covering it, because, you know, it's one of the major shows we cover, but maybe lose interest and it would become a chore to review. I don't know. Maybe we're both being too hard on the series. Maybe they will return to Rip as captain in a few weeks when things start going wrong with Sarah in charge and she realizes she needs Rip to be in charge. That would be the best outcome possible where I see it. I completely agree and you bring up a very good point about losing Captain Cold last season and even, you know, Firestorm in some respects this season. At the beginning of this season, we knew that Rip was preparing every member of the Legends for the time he would be gone and in his his absence, they've been functioning as a unit the same way he functioned by himself. And now that they can function just as well as he could alone, solo, he really isn't needed in some respects anymore. And I think he's starting to realize that. And I think the rest of the team are starting to realize that. And that could easily be a way, a, a cop-out way, for him decide, to decide to make the ultimate sacrifice and sacrifice himself or his teammates or his friends because ultimately they fulfill the role that he could do alone as a time master so i really hope that isn't the case but now that you've mentioned that i can really see that being being what happens yeah now the roughest part of this week's legends for me was seeing nate and his grandfather actually form a relationship only for it to be pulled out right from under them as Nathaniel decided to sacrifice himself so the team could get back to Earth safe and sound. I really liked how the two Steels were coming to terms with being family and with Nate revealing to his grandfather just what kind of impact his own father had on it. That was very touching and made the ending even harder. In fact, it reminded me somewhat of Jay sacrificing himself for Barry and Wally on The Flash this week. Nico, what were your thoughts on Steel and Commander Steel? Did we get that familial relationship we needed, or was there more left to be desired? How do you think this is going to affect Nate going forward? No, I thought this was just what we needed for both of these characters. Commander Steel needed to know that his sacrifice meant something, that his leaving his family, abandoning his son and wife, meant that the world was safe from the Legion of Doom. But he also needed to know that they were all right and that the future turned out the way it was supposed to. Nate needed to know that he can't mess with the future or there could be dire consequences, and that will once again be made clear later in the season now that Amaya knows her future and may consider stopping the the destruction of her village. But Nate needed to know that his future is secure despite his grandfather making the ultimate sacrifice to save the Legends team, and he tried to make his dad's life a little bit better by connecting with him at the Space Center after the fact. I don't think we needed much more than what we got, but I also have to say that as soon as Nate and Commander Steel began bonding, we all knew that he would not that Commander Steel would not survive the episode. So his sacrifice was not all that surprising in the end, especially when Nate admitted that even had he not known that 
that he could not interfere with his family's life going forward. When he returned, he still would have made that sacrifice because that is the kind of hero he always was, and that wasn't going to change. So I think I think Nate and Commander Steel both learned very important lessons of, and very important things about their family, and and that bonding was important, but ultimately it served no long purpose to the series other than what it did to Nate and Amaya. But that that's something we'll talk about in a minute. Well, and hopefully too, it'll really help Nate become more selfless, not in just his relationship with Amaya, but as a hero in and of his own right. Yeah. You know, Vigo, we haven't been silent about how neither of us have really enjoyed the Nate and Amaya relationship, which seemingly came out of absolutely nowhere. So when Nate told Vixen of her destiny and her children and her grandchildren's future, I was actually happy, hoping that as she convinced her friend and her former teammate to give up his family for history, so much she. Vigo, what do you think Vixen is going to do now? Will she continue to pursue Nate forsaking a future that she's supposed to live, or is she going to embrace her future for what it is, similarly to how Barry has decided on The Flash. You know, even though without the concept of beating a supervillain in his own game, that's that's a little bit different, but similar concepts. Yeah, unfortunately, I think she's going to believe that she can change the future and will train her granddaughter to become the hero she is in the future, thus negating any changes to the timeline her saving her village would have caused. I think ultimately she will learn the hard way that you can't fight the future because, as we've seen often in other series and in the first season, which I know she was not a part of and thus did not get learn this lesson about time, was that time wants to happen and it tends to try and happen the way it is meant to happen. Thus, I think regardless of her attempts to change the future by preventing her village's destruction, it's going to happen eventually and result in the future playing out as it is intended. Also, I hope Nate telling Amaya the future is what ultimately breaks them up. His trying to, quote, do the right thing for her is going to cause major issues between them and and when she mm-hmm. starts to change or starts to try and change the future, it will also change everything between them. That would serve him right for ignoring a major time master rule or premise of not knowing too much about your own future. And he essentially told Vixen everything she needed to know about hers and, you know, everything she shouldn't know about hers. Right. And, you know, it could be interesting if at the end of the season she decides to go back to her time and maybe they erase her memory. Maybe she remembers and if she does remember, they could easily have her try and save her village and change time, of course, while keeping most things the same, kind of like when Martin created his own daughter, right? just by briefly saying something to his younger self in the past. So it could maybe not have lasting effects, but nevertheless, it's not something they should necessarily, you know, attempt. And I think ultimately, maybe erasing her knowledge of the future or even her time with the Legends at all could be what's best for Amaya once she returns home. Now, briefly, I have to mention how funny was the scene where Stein had to stall Houston by singing, even getting Vic to join along. I, it's not the first time this season we've heard Victor Garber sing, but every time I hear it, I have to laugh because I think it's hilarious and it's it's great. I just I love every time he's on there and he has to do something like that because he's so uncomfortable, but he does it anyway. Yeah. I mean, along with that, you know, the 2001 Space Odyssey may not be one of my favorite movies. In fact, I think it's totally overrated personally, but the 2001 music worked perfectly for Ray walking on the moon, which clearly was something he's wanted to do forever. In fact, I'm happy for Ray this season. After watching earlier this year him struggling with his place on the team and then realizing and embracing it, he really has fulfilled a lot of his own childhood dreams and fantasies, including meeting Lancelot, George Lucas, and now walking on the moon. And let's not forget his to mention his trip to the Cretaceous period, which he also really seems to enjoy. Nico, what were your thoughts on science singing this week as well as Ray's trip to the moon? You know, I think what Legends does best compared to like Arrow or The Flash or even Supergirl to a point is that it doesn't really take 
itself too seriously until it absolutely has to. Did you enjoy these points in the episode as well as I did, or is it just me? Yeah, Michael, these were all fun and funny aspects of the episode that saved this episode from being a stinker for me. The singing was fun, especially when we got a bit extra or longer version in the credits after the episode. I don't yeah. know if you, were, if you saw that. Okay. But overall, this episode ended up being only so-so in the end, but without the fun of Ray on the Moon, Victor and Mick scenes in Mission Control, and all the astronaut stuff, it might have been the worst episode of the season. But instead, it was fun and vastly improved this episode episode because we actually had some fun with Victor, Mick, and Ray this week. And so I, I, I absolutely agree. I think they saved this episode. They made it what was fun and a fun time to just sit and watch them have some fun on the screen. Absolutely. And speaking of Ray, I really enjoyed the partnership between Ray and Eobard Thawne this week. And, you know, we learned a few things about Eobard as well. First of which being is that this Thawne, which we know here on Legends, is in fact the same version of Thawne that was apparently destroyed or erased when Eddie Thawne killed himself in season one. You know, the same Thawne who worked with Team Flash for a year pretending to be Harrison Wells, which I guess I didn't really realize. I assumed it was the same version who went back in time and killed uh, Nora Allen before being stuck for 15 years, but apparently this version has those memories as well. We also learned that Thawne seems to be a man of his word, actually helping Ray escape the moon and even sparing his life. I mean, ultimately Thawne is really just concerned with self-preservation and escaping the Black Flash, but nevertheless, there's now a connection between these two characters that wasn't there before, although I guess they did briefly meet and work together during season one of The Flash a few years back uh, during the All-Star Team episode. Nico, with Thawne really just wanting to restore himself to the timeline again, do you think it's possible that Ray could actually help Thawne in bringing his life back? I, I don't know if maybe this is too much of a stretch to think that the Atom would help the Reverse Flash, but clearly we've seen Thawne work with Dr. Palmer here already. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think he would be sympathetic maybe even to his cause? You know, I, I don't think Ray will help Thawne so much as maybe Thawne will help the Legends if and when the Legion of Doom resets or rewrites reality and things go horribly wrong and things are vastly different than even the life was when Thawne was Wells and he helps the Legends with the understanding that they will ultimately leave his changes in place so that he is no longer a time remnant and can return to his own time or can live his life and not be continually chased by that Time Wraith or the Black Flash or something like that. I think that's the only way I see Ray and Thawne working together again. I don't think that it will be initiated from Ray's side. While Ray, I think, may be able to understand what Thawne's mission and, and his his reasons are, and even, you know, may even agree with him to an extent, he would never help or knowingly help Thawne to, to bring about a, a, a reality change. You know, Ray is really bought into the idea of not changing the past, not, ch you know, interfering with history, and so I, I don't see him being a part of that in, in that sense. I, I I just think that he may be the one that Thawne reaches out to once the Legion of Doom is successful and maybe Thawne realizes, oh, the changes Malcolm and Dark made are, are awful. They are really destructive yeah. to the future. Let's, I need your guys' help to, to fix this and I will help you and we'll be successful, but I need you to make it so that I do not get erased from the timeline again. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I just really enjoyed their partnership this week, which seemed very different than anything else we've seen Thawne have to do. We kind of saw him work with Barry earlier this season in season three of The Flash, but 
I thought it was very interesting to see him work with Ray, especially with them both being scientists. So yep. I thought that was cool and fun. Do you have any other thoughts on this week's episode of Legends of Tomorrow, Nico? The only thing I want to say is I really hope they fix the Sarah and Rip stuff and not by making Rip just a member of the Legends. He's the leader, and I hope we get back to that. Amen. I completely agree. And that being said, I think we'll move on into the closing. Yeah. On next week's episode, we continue our reviews of the spring 2017 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. Still no Gotham, which is on its ridiculously long spring hiatus until late April, but at least all of the other four shows will be back. So make sure to join us for all of those shows that are actually airing next week. But for now, in most of the season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast. Get at our website. AcrossTheAirways.com. Get at AcrossTheAirways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows. Available as their own. Get individual programs. Get the iTunes Store. Get Google Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. We have the DC Nation podcast. Located at DCNation.AcrossTheAirways.com. Okay, that's dcnation.acrossTheAirways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrossTheAirways.com. Okay, that's marvelversepodcast.acrossTheAirways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. Okay, we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrossTheAirways.com. Okay, that's thronescast.acrossTheAirways.com. Airways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrossTheAirways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, and the mixed radio station, Code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, Download the Podcast Box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace. Got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Got for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback. Got the TV shows we review. Provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience. Or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle. Got Google Plus. Or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Could get it 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you are sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wu Kim, Joshua Murkay, James Hayfo, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reistek. I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya. Hey, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight, come and me wanna go Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me wanna go home. Lift six foot, seven foot, eight foot, punch. Nice voice, Professor. Work all night and I drink a rum. Daylight come and me wanna go home. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me wanna go home.
Tata Taliman, Tali mi banana. Me like come and me want go home. Come, Mister Taliman, Tali mi banana. Me like come and me want go home. Live six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Me like come and me want go home. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. A beautiful bunch, a ripe banana. Hide the deadly black tarantula. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.